You're listening to a podcast edition of Closer to Truth. For more information about this series, visit our website, closertotruth.com. Welcome to Closer to Truth. I am speaking with Paul Davies, director of Beyond, Center for Fundamental Concepts in Science at Arizona State University, about his fantastic new book, which I loved, What's Eating the Universe and Other Cosmic Questions. Paul, it's great to see you again. It's a terrific read. All our favorite cosmic questions and some new ones. I can't wait to discuss it. What motivated such a grand sweep? I suppose there are two quick answers to that. Uh, One uh, was the COVID pandemic. It forced a lot of us uh, to uh, sit at home and think rather deeply about our lives and our future. And uh, I'm uh, fortunate enough to have spent my entire career working on fundamental questions in science, but in particular in cosmology. I've lived through what I call the golden age of cosmology. When I was a student, There was a quip that there's speculation and then there's speculation squared and then there's cosmology. It wasn't even a properly developed science. But now it is a precision science alongside all of the others that we know and love. And and I've had a front row seat in that development. And so I've reached that point in my career when I can look back and say, wow, that's amazing. We've answered so many of those big questions that I was asking as a teenager. But like all golden ages, it leaves a lot of unanswered questions. There's still a lot of mysteries. And I wanted to write a book that would both celebrate the amazing advances that we've made, but also uh, point out that we need a next generation of of scientists. We need young people to come into the field and help solve some of the problems that this golden age has raised. This is unfinished business. We still have a lot of work to do. What about that title? It's, uh, it really struck me as, as a little unusual for a cosmology book. Well, uh, this uh, book started out really with a catalogue of, uh, of what we know and what we don't know about the universe. And one of the uh, the chapter titles is What's Eating the Universe? And uh, the uh, my editor decided to pick that particular one as the title of the book. And... Uh, Uh, Of course, the uh, subtitle and other cosmic questions means that it's not the only thing that is dealt with. And and so there was a lot of thought went into it. Uh, People say, well, what's this book about? And and I say, well, it's really a a romp across the cosmic frontier Uh, and uh, looking at uh, all the fun topics that people like to think about. But also, uh, I've tried to bring a type of quirky style to this. Maybe that's just my mind or my sense of humor. Uh, But I like to approach standard scientific topics from a somewhat uh, left of field perspective and uh, combining, um, uh, I think, uh, new new insights with a certain amount of humor. Uh, I I like my books to be a good read. Uh, It it certainly is. I thoroughly enjoyed it. Uh, It is uh, a, a case of taking your subjects enormously seriously but not yourself. I've always loved that about you and about the vision that you, you've given us. Um, here's the plan of, of, of our discussion. Uh, 
that the book is lends itself so well because you have all these topics, around 30 of them, and they're all very concise and short. So it lends itself to a kind of a rapid-fire approach that we'll have. Some of them we'll dig a little deeper, but let, let's do that. But, but before I do that, I really need to introduce you, not just as, as a, the, our old friend of Closer to Truth, but a little bit more formal. So let me do that for a second and say that Paul Davies is a theoretical physicist, cosmologist, astrobiologist, and best-selling science author. He has published about 30 books and hundreds of research papers across a range of scientific fields, including quantum gravity, early universe cosmology, the nature of time, astrobiology, and an evolutionary theory of cancer. Among his many awards are the 1995 Templeton Prize and the Faraday Prize from the Royal Society. We're happy to say that Paul Davies is one of Closer to Truth's top contributors. You can watch Paul's 60 videos and 24 TV episodes at CloserToTruth.com and Closer to Truth's YouTube channel. Paul, before we go through each of the 30 chapters, uh, I'd like to focus on three of your really big ideas that uh, are my favorites, and they've helped uh, inform and motivate Closer to Truth over the years, and, 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 and put that in, in, the, in the broad categories. Then as we discuss the specific areas, people can see how they relate to some of these big ideas. And the first is teleology and the cosmos. Uh, I know you avoid the loaded concepts of purpose and meaning. Uh, I think you say in the book that the meaning of meaning is fraught with difficulties. But you do say, and this is the powerful, powerful idea, that the universe is about something. So what's the difference between purpose and meaning on the one hand and being about something on the other? One of the difficulties that we have in describing the universe is that we tend to cast most of our questions in human terms, that is, we use concepts drawn from human discourse. And of course, humans have purposes, they attach meaning to events in their lives. Uh, and so there's a tendency to want to export that onto nature as a whole. Uh, and sometimes that's okay if it's used as an analogy. Uh, sometimes we take it too far. If you believe, as some people do, that nature is the product of agency, uh, that if there is a creator or a god or an underlying meaning to the universe, uh, that's okay. But if you're agnostic on that, you have to be really careful, I think, about using these loaded terms when applied to nature. Now, I have to say that historically, scientists have always done this. Uh, for example, uh, the ancient Greeks, uh, the pinnacle of their technology were surveying equipment and musical instruments and so on, and they built a whole cosmology out of those types of concepts. We talk about the music of the spheres, for example, the harmony that we see in nature. Uh, and the word rational stems from the, the ratio of, of whole numbers. And so the Greeks thought number, music, proportion, harmony, all these things were important. But they're really all human inventions. And then along came Isaac Newton, and he had a clockwork universe. The clockwork was the pinnacle of technology in his day. Uh, and he wanted to uh, treat the entire universe as a mechanism. Well, a mechanism or a machine, that's a human construct too. Now, some people talk about uh, the computer as the pinnacle of technology, and maybe nature is a computational process. Maybe we should just see it in terms of uh, processing of bits. Well, all of these things capture, uh, to some extent, what the universe is about. 
Um, but the, the but the universe is not a musical instrument, and it's not a machine, and it's not a computer. It's something else entirely. Uh, and so, uh, my feeling about these words like meaning and purpose: organisms have meaning and purpose. Uh, the universe isn't an organism, but it's part of all of the things I've just mentioned. Uh, and so, uh, I try to re retreat from those loaded terms, uh, uh, but but still retain some sense that we're not living in uh, a universe that's uh, arbitrary or absurd or is just a rag bag of odds and ends and uh, a mishmash of, of forces, that it is a coherent scheme of things. Uh, and when I say it's about something, what I mean by that is um, there is a, a, a text or a plot, if you like, a subtext or something of that sort that makes sense. and. Uh, towards the end of my book, I talk a, a great deal about the, the practice of doing science involves making sense of what you're investigating, of the world about you. You don't just think, well, let's sort of kick it and see what happens. Sometimes you do that. But to, to arrive at an understanding, so science is much more about, the, about than just describing the universe. It's about understanding the universe. And that sort of aha moment that is so satisfying in the life of a scientist. Now I see it. It all falls into place. Um, that is what gives me the powerful feeling that uh, that, that in nature uh, there, there is something to be dug out that, that makes sense. There is sense in nature. Uh, and, and that's why I say it's about something, that there is that there's a scheme. It, it's not just arbitrary that we, we wouldn't do science if we felt that uh, by taking the next step, we would uncover uh, only a meaningless mishmash of things. Uh, the, the, the whole purpose of building things like the Large Hadron Collider, for example, is the expectation that uh, we would either find the Higgs boson, which we did, um, or something else. But whatever else it was would fit in somehow to a scheme. And I keep using the, this word scheme, but for me, uh, a, a theoretical physicist, Scheme means a network of mathematical relationships. It's the mathematics that lies at the heart of nature. It's the subtext of nature. And so this great cosmic scheme of things is, is a uh, expression of mathematical relationships. And that to me is truly r remarkable. Uh, that, that's the, the great motivating factor that makes me- Your distinction between meaning and purpose on the one hand and being about something on the other, I think is extremely important. Now, many, um, atheistic scientists and philosophers might object even to the word about something. They say, you know, reality of the universe is about nothing. It just is. Um, you make this interesting connection between doing science and making sense of nature, then moving that forward or, or see, seeing an implication in that um, about seeing there is a deeper underlying sense in reality. Here's a, a sentence from, from, uh, from near the end of the book, which I think speaks to this. You say, it seems to me that if we can extract sense from nature, which is science, which you've just described, then there must be something like sense in nature. And by this, you mean the universe is about something and you call it the key to the universe. So that, that's pretty strong. Well, it is pretty strong, but it's a... Uh, uh, an impression that I have had throughout my entire career, uh, that we're uncovering something that is 
uh, already there. Uh, it, it, this isn't something we just invent. Uh, there, there is there are some people who think that scientists uh, just impose order on the universe for their own uh, convenience or professional advancement. Uh, I never believe that. I think that the we live in a universe that's ordered in uh, a very deep and, and subtle manner, and we don't see most of that order in daily life. Uh, when you go around, uh, look at the world about you, it's so complex. At first sight, you think, well, we can never make sense of all, all of this. But beneath that surface complexity is this extraordinarily uh, harmonious mathematical order. And you have to work fairly hard to dig it out. So it's sort of buried there. It's um, it, One way of expressing it is that it's encrypted. So we're so used to using mathematics now to describe the world. You want to work out the trajectory of a spacecraft or figure out the properties of a laser or whatever it might be. You sit down, you write down equations, and people sort of take it for granted that they work. Uh, but um, really, this is truly remarkable that the uh, the human mind, which has invented mathematics, uh, we have found that that has nevertheless has application to the deepest processes in nature. And they're going on all the time, all around us. We don't just see them in daily life. You deduce them from arcane procedures, uh, such as um, do, doing weird things in laboratories uh, where you subject matter to conditions that would not normally encounter in the outside world. And you write down uh, lots of complicated looking equations and manipulate those and, and this is our pathway to uncovering what is going on in the universe but there is something going on it's it's not just um, <laughs> that, that there's a whole collection of things there and we're just it's like stamp collecting we found this we found that and so on they all interconnect uh, so the universe is a process it's not just a collection of objects it's a process uh, following a coherent set of rules Ultimately, we call these rules the laws of, of physics or the laws of, of nature. And of course, it's one of the most profound questions we can ask is where those laws of nature come from and whether they have to be in, in the form they have. But, they, but for me, there are all, there've always been two great puzzles. One is why those laws, but the other is why can we understand them? How is it that human beings can not only observe the world and catalog its regularities, but come to understand it, at least in part, through this wonderful thing we call science. Paul, you have so many great ideas, great phrases in the book, but, but here's my very favorite. You say, a universe that just exists for no reason with specific properties that just are, is correctly described, in your words, in formal logic, as absurd. I love that phrase. <laughs> Uh, yeah, yes, I think this is a, a really important point because uh, if I think about many of my scientific colleagues, uh, that we will agree completely that uh, the whole process of science is following a chain of reasoning, that looking for connections or causes, and uh, you take uh, some typical phenomenon, you know, what makes the sunshine, and, and you look through all of the, the, the physics and the nuclear fusion, and why does that happen, and so on, and you can trace this chain of causation all the way down until you get to these fundamental laws of physics. And that's the point where I want to say, well, why, as I just did, why those laws and uh, could they be different and how do we come to understand them? Uh, and, um, and so many of my colleagues who don't want to be drawn into these deeper issues, uh, I'm not going to call them atheists or agnostics or anything else, they just feel uncomfortable about going beyond simply accepting 
the universe as it is as a brute fact. They say, well, you know, that's it. We'll just stop there and we'll just get on with the job. Uh, whereas I've always felt, well, um, why should we stop there? We're trying to investigate the nature of reality. And I want to know why it is that the universe is ordered in this particular way. And again, I say, why it is that human beings can come to understand it, can, can make these connections between phenomena that in daily life are completely disparate. We would never guess that there's a connection, uh, for example, between um, yeah, nuclear forces and, uh, and what makes the lights shine. Uh, or we would never guess that uh, gravitation uh, is connected to electromagnetism in some deep way that we haven't yet worked out. And the other thing about uh, the scientific method of inquiry is that there are some things which without science we would never have noticed at all. We'd never have found neutrinos, we wouldn't know they exist because they don't manifest themselves in daily life. Nor would we ever realize there's something called the Higgs boson, which uh, simply isn't around us for most of the time. Uh, and, and so uh, the, the fact that, that science can take us beyond into this deep realm of encrypted mathematical interconnections, uh, I think is truly amazing. And I, I, for one, am not prepared to accept it just as a brute fact. That seems very unromantic, I have to say. <laughs> and in looking for that potential deep level, not, not that anybody will claim to, to find it, you've addressed in this book and in your whole career, a whole series of different possibilities which could at least shed light on what that ultimate um, uh, foundation would be. And then you come up with this conclusion that every explanation, every explanation is absurd when seeking to explain all reality at some fundamental level. Uh, absurdity to me, as you've described it, is really, it sounds funny, but it's really a profound insight. So the question I wanna ask you is, when did this idea of absurdity first emerge in your overall thinking? And, and how has it developed over the years? Uh, I suppose if I think back, one of the strongest influences on me uh, was the work of John Archibald Wheeler. Uh, so John was uh, an old friend going back uh, many, many decades. It was he who coined the term black hole. Uh, he was an immense influence on theoretical physics, in particular gravitational physics. But he too liked to go one step further. He liked to ask the question, how come existence? And his other, uh, he was a master of aphorisms, his other was uh, that the, the laws of physics are not cast in tablets of stone from everlasting to everlasting. He saw uh, these laws as not uh, absolute fundamental truths, but as uh, something that is possibly malleable, but certainly something that needed explanation. And the third thing he uh, talked about was no Tower of Turtles, uh, which left a great impression on me. Well, what, what does that mean? Well, it's the old parable uh, that uh, the universe or the world is uh, resting on the back of an elephant, which is uh, standing on a turtle. Uh, and then the question is, well, what is the turtle standing on? And the answer is, well, it's turtles all the way down. Uh, and so what uh, Wheeler wanted to do was to get away from that notion of an infinite regress, uh, because that doesn't really explain anything. Uh, and then I like to describe this as uh, having a sort of levitating super turtle uh, that holds all the others up. But now, you see, we really get down to this problem of, uh, of absurdity. 
because and I'm not the, I'm using absurdity in the technical logical sense, not in the in the sense of outlandishness, um, because if something uh, has to be accepted as a brute fact without uh, any justification, well then uh, that's regarded as absurd. And the difficulty that we always face in trying to explain the world about us is that we have to start somewhere. We have to, uh, there has to be a sort of basement uh, assumption that we take on faith. Uh, now, for a lot of people, that's simply God. Uh, there is a God, uh, and we don't question how that God comes to exist or what explains God. You know, God is the starting point, the ground of being, as it's sometimes uh, described by theologians, and that that uh, then supports everything else. God did this, God did that, uh, and there's a whole chain uh, of that sort. Uh, some people say, well, let's take the laws of physics as the levitating superturtle. Uh, accepted without explanation. Um, and I've always thought that both of these are really inadequate. Uh, just saying, let there be an agent who exists necessarily, uh, or let there be a set of laws that just happens to be, um, that we, we, can, we have to do better uh, and uh, try to come up with some other form of explanation for existence. And, and this is is really a conceptual game that we have to play because I'm not really talking here about uh, can we do an experiment to detect God or to detect um, whether there's uh, some deep, deeper laws that explain the laws or anything of that sort. I'm talking about framing our questions about these fundamental notions of existence, framing them in a different type of language. And that's what I've struggled to do because I think everything up to this stage requires an unexplained levitating super turtle, which by definition is absurd. So uh, I don't think I've cracked this problem. Uh, and it may well be that we, we never, we will never crack it. It may be that all of this lies beyond human ability uh, to comprehend. Uh, I hope that's not the case, but I accept that, uh, that we do have limited capabilities in understanding the world. And it could be that the framework uh, in which it really does make sense uh, is something that is uh, truly alien to us and will always remain so. I, I occasionally toy with the idea that, um, you know, Douglas Adams' uh, story, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, uh, there's the, uh, the computer that gets asked the question, what is the meaning of life, the universe and everything? And uh, the answer comes back as 42 um, and it means nothing of course, to, to the population. So it could be that we will build some sort of super duper artificial intelligence and put these problems uh, to this entity that will then cogitate on it uh, for a millennium or something and come back with some answer that just doesn't convey any meaning to us. I hope that's not true. I hope human beings have the capacity one day to be able to really grasp at this deeper level what is going on. But we haven't got there yet. I, I think this is one of the, the biggest mystery, uh, biggest unanswered question that I've referred to in the book is, is why is the universe comprehensible to us, at least in part? And what, what are the ultimate explanation for existence? These, these are open questions. Even if we cannot ultimately discern reality you know, with our human capacity, to continue to ask these questions, I think, is a fundamental part of our humanity. That's what we've tried to do on Closer to Truth, and we've done that together over the last 15 years. 
Um, so, you know, we, we applaud that very much and we're going to keep doing that, keep asking those questions from many, many different angles. Um, the third big idea that you had actually relates to the second, and that is relating to the fine tuning of the universe. The fact that whether it's six, 12, 24 different uh, parameters need to be sort of just so in different ways that's challenged by some, but, um, is traditionally explained by either multiple universes with different laws such that anthropic selection picks out only the place where we can exist. It, it's almost a, a, a tautology, but there is some meaning there, or that there is a fine tuner of some kind, which some, of course, would call God. You've said uh, that there, you, you put a, 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 in a funny way, a pox on both houses, that it's a false di dichotomy, and you try to explain our one universe within our one universe. Uh, how do you, what's the plan to do that? Right, so it's back to the Tower of Turtles. And in fact, it's back to John Wheeler and his influence on me because he always wanted uh, to have some sort of um, self-explanatory scheme that you didn't appeal to some external entity uh, to explain the world, that the world uh, should have its explanation contained within itself. And now the difficulty in implementing that uh, is it's back to this, you know, the dreaded T word, the, the teleology, uh, that um, the universe uh, is uh, evolving uh, as, as if it's got a meaning or a purpose, or it's at least uh, the original idea of, of teleology was that there are final causes, that uh, it wasn't a matter of, uh, of everything that happens in the universe is sort of set at the beginning and it runs its course. Uh, te teleology means that, there, that there's a pull as well as a, a push factor. And so this is um, a weird uh, re relationship to time because we normally think uh, causes come before their effects and the idea that there could be sort of things going back in the other direction seems very alien. But when you get into the whole realm of quantum physics, it turns out we can't make that separation uh, in quite such an easy manner. Uh, and that is because of the fundamental uncertainty which quantum mechanics introduces into nature. I think uh, many people have heard of Heisenberg's uncertainty principle, and we normally think that means, well, if you set something up and let it go, there's some uncertainty about its future states. But that uncertainty works back in time as well. And so if you say, well, what do we know about um, our past trajectory, about the uh, how how we connect the present state of the universe to its state of the Big Bang, for example, uh, well, uh, we, everything we know depends on specific observations. And where, we, where there are no observations, where there is no recorded data, well, then there is uncertainty. So quantum mechanics, if you think it applies to the whole universe, goes back in time and forward in time. Um, it's often called the, the many worlds or many histories uh, version of, uh, of physics. And uh, here, we can make a distinction between the many uh, technically branches of the wave function, but many uh, histories that there might be in the world, make a distinction between that and the many bubble universes that are popular in the multiverse theory that uh, might explain the fine tuning. Um, and so uh, Wheeler's point is that every time we make an observation, we uh, reduce or we cull the number of alternative histories connecting the Big Bang to us now. We, uh, uh, in part, concretize the past. So it's a way of reaching back into the past 
but we can't change the past. You know, a lot of people get, think this, uh, the, that uh, what Wheeler was saying is, well, we can make an observation now and that changes something in the past. That's not at all what happens. There is an ambiguity about the past through quantum physics, just like there's an ambiguity about the future. When we make an observation, see a distant uh, galaxy or something, uh, then we're reducing the number of options that the universe has to get us from the initial state uh, to this state here. So there is a way of interweaving past and future. Uh, and I think that, so I toyed with that idea that that is the basis for coming up with an explanation in which, if you like, the universe explains itself from within itself or with its own uh, interactions. Now, there, there, there's still things that uh, you have to assume. Now you've got to assume there is a universe and that there are laws of quantum physics and so on. All of these things uh, have to go into the package, um, which are left outside this. But it's not a matter, as so many people want, of having you know a super being already existing that then creates the universe and sort of lets it evolve. Um, it's I want to get away from from that idea to something which um, has more of a sort of self-contained or self-consistent line of explanation. So I think that's the best I can do in words. Of course. Most of these things rely on mathematical treatments, and there is a specific ma mathematics involved in uh, in this sort of reaching back in in time effect of quantum mechanics. So it can be expressed mathematically, uh, but it's a difficult concept to for people to understand. Paul, I have to tell you, I'm frustrated now because I want to go right into each chapter of this terrific book, What's Eating the Universe, but we're going to have to wait till next time. And we'll see how each of these chapters reflect these three big ideas and many other ideas that you have. So much looking forward to it. There's a lot of fun topics to cover still, and uh, I always enjoy talking to you, Robert. To watch complete conversations with over 100 of the world's leading thinkers on cosmos, consciousness, and meaning, visit our website, closertotruth.com.